0: Was really good devs. I recovered from the vid. It was as bad as when I got the booster, probably the second and third shot. Probably lasted a good three to four days, though, feeling pretty shitty. I like to think that the vaccines kept it at bay from what could have been much worse. The hardest part, as I mentioned, was isolating from my pack. That was the thing that made me regret whatever I went out to go experience to get the damn thing. In better news. Descript, the application that I use to do all the post-production for this podcast, accepted me into the affiliate program. If you make content, I really dig Descript because it lets me edit video and audio like I would a text document. And they do the transcription and have pretty powerful automatic audio mastering. So there's a link to my referral code in the show notes if you make content and are willing to check out a different software set. Hopefully I didn't feel like an ad. Definitely send me some hate messages if you want me to cut that shit out or classify it under that whole no bullshit, no ads, no bullshit creed of our show. Now, hit my music. On episode 34 of the Game Devs podcast, Out of Play Area, I sit down with Henry Golding, a principal software engineering lead at Xbox Game Studios. He's a fellow Seattle developer who came over by way of the UK as a programmer on Sea of Thieves, Minecraft, Disney Universe and Dead Space Extraction for the Wii. In this episode, we go in on what test driven development is and where you can go to learn more as well as his journey throughout game dev from how he landed to becoming a programmer, what he studied, how he broke in and making the jump from the UK to the West Coast and more please welcome henry golding let's fall the fuck out bienvenido bienvenue welcome to the out of play area podcast a show by video game devs for game devs where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey their experiences their views and their ideas no ads no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer John Diaz. Where's your accent from, Henry? <laughs> well, you
1: probably thought I was Australian, I bet. No, you did not didn't wrong. Okay, mm. many Americans do think that I'm Australian. That's my little joke. I think you have a more proper Queen's English. <laughs> I am English. I'm from England, and that
0: is the accent that i have to me anyway it automatically adds like plus 20 to your iq <laughs> adds to my charisma modifier yep that's <laughs> it, totally
1: it. it's interesting because like even people who i used to know who they'd moved to america you know like only a few years before and you could already kind of listening to them as a person who didn't live in the united states i could really pick out like some changes in their mm-hmm. speech and i was like oh, i bet they don't know that right? And I think the same as pro- so probably an English person listening to this right now is like, wow, Henry sounds really American. Mm-hmm. And I was watching a video of myself. This was an internal video that we did to kind of pitch out this idea of what we were doing on Sea of Thieves to the other studios internally. So this is from quite a few years ago when I was living in the Midlands <laughs> in England and I'm watching it and I'm like, wow, I have these little Midlandsy quirks in my speech, oh. which I think might be gone now or they might still be there. But I think with anyone, you start out with some accent and then you build it up over time right so like i lived 10 years in the midlands in england and i've lived here now for like five years and so it's inevitable that you'll pick
0: some things up yeah it just slowly creeps into your speech it's like the audio of it you eventually mimic it like a parrot. Yeah. You stop calling things biscuits and
1: call them cookies. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, actually my, my uncle, one of my uncles who was originally English, he immigrated to Canada, lives in Vancouver and his wife is Australian. And so he has this kind of really interesting accent, which is kind of a mix of, it's not really Canadian. It's not really <laughs> Australian. Yeah. Well, I, I know you have a multi-accented household also.
0: Yeah. So Catherine is French Canadian. And then Spanish is my first language, so it'll be interesting to see what this household transforms into over time. <laughs> what are you drinking? I am drinking Lady Grey tea. What is it with grey teas as opposed to like black teas, green teas? It is a black tea, but it's like, um, you know, Earl Grey tea. It's like
1: tea with Bergamo flavoring mm. and then the Lady Grey is related to that. And it's with orange flavoring instead of the Bergamo.
0: Henry, so it's funny because you are one of the first people to actually take advantage of the self-serve website for the podcast, <laughs> book time, come in and be like, yo, I got a story to tell. I want to tell it. And I was shocked because A, that never happened before you did it. And then B, I was like, hold on. I know this guy, <laughs> <laughs> what? It was serendipitous, put a huge smile on my face. It felt like a lightning bolt of like, yes, things are working. People are listening. Like all this automated self-service backend stuff that I pay money into, is finally <laughs> paying off.
1: Yeah, I heard about your podcast. You know, obviously we had met, but I didn't know you did a podcast until Chris Barasa told me. And Shout was out like, to Chris. Yeah, so I was like, "Oh, cool! I should get in
0: touch with this guy, and we can talk." The industry's small. We have mutual friends. You guys are actually family, right? Like, I was just having this conversation yeah. with my wife. Like, it's like, hold on, are Chris and Henry? brother-in-law like, yeah, Chris is my brother-in-law. Chris is your brother-in-law because your wife is his sister-in-law. Also, man, congratulations on fatherhood, fatherhood in the pandemic. I think this is the best time to be bringing life into this world. How's that been treating you? It's been really good and it's certainly had its challenges. Say, Say more about it being the best time. What tends to happen in the States anyway, right? I'd have to ask you how it is in Europe. But most companies, I, th- I think Microsoft has better than most, but most companies have very poor paternal mm, maternity need. Right. I see and what you're so saying Yeah, For fathers trying to get in and trying to help offload some of this craziness, there's not a lot of opportunity if you're kind of bouncing back and forth between an office and putting in commute times, Right, so right. getting to be at home to tag team and offload. And divvy up the work and shifts and people having to work and feed and change and sleep and things like this. Yeah, I see what you're saying.
1: And I agree. And Microsoft have for a father you know, or a non-giving birth partner, you get three months in total. And I took mine in two chunks, so that, you know, that, that was good. I think it's still kind of on the low side by European standards. But, Absolutely. So. It is. You no, know, I mean, it's certainly very fortunate feel very fortunate, you know, especially given that some people don't get any, which is kind of crazy because it's really like, I don't even know how
0: you could survive without that. You would have to hire help, I guess, or have family who could come yeah. stay with you. I think that's the only thing, right, is having family that can chip in because childcare is super expensive, and at least Washington State has started hitting my paycheck for some type of paternity Mm -hmm. benefits, which I was more than happy to pay. And I wonder if that factors in at all. Is that even a thing for... So I'm no expert on it, but I believe that it's beneficial
1: if you don't work for a company that has... That benefit, I think. So a company like Microsoft, where they have a benefit that already exceeds the state benefit, I think they say that they are, you know, they're compliant, but we still pay for it. (laughs) Yeah, and in fact, you know who knows a ton about this is Chris, because he spent a lot of time, I think, discussing it with the Polyark HR, who he rates very highly.
0: That's a good thing, right, is as the industry matures and we start hitting those times where, hey, we're actually now becoming parents and things like this, like these questions now matter. And and before companies got away with not having to think hard about it because we were all young or, you know, the generation before us wasn't even a thing that they had to put out there to lure talent over. And now it very much is a thing. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually yesterday, because I've
1: been in the industry like 12 years, I think. And then I remember even when I was kind of coming into the industry at that time, everyone was saying like, oh, you know, the games workforce is kind of growing up. Right. Yeah. The, the people are having kids and families and so forth.
0: We can't give the unlimited hours we used to
1: give. <laughs> right. Right. I'd be really curious if there's been any research or studies on like the composition of the workforce, right? Is it just like still new people coming in? I think I've heard you say on the podcast before about like, you know, it's kind of hard to stay in the industry, right? It becomes much harder as you get older to kind of stay in and not move out.
0: Yeah. It's a thing. There's a few different surveys over the past few years. I think GDC has like a state of the industry that's pretty decent about reporting the numbers. And I think three or four years ago, the average of people in and people leaving and people lasting to like five years and 10 years kind of kept dwindling, right? As soon as you kind of step out and you see how much different it can be outside of the games industry. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to look outside of the pandemic in its current state and see how many people have turned around to be like whoa i love having time at home and look how much better life or quality of life is when i get to be more present or don't have to balance a ton of things and and how much time i get back yeah for sure (laughs) yeah and like
1: i think someone was asking
0: me the other day like my position is like
1: i would like to primarily work from home Indefinitely now, you know, and I never thought that I would be that way, but I, I had a pretty bad commute before the pandemic. How long was it? We were in Fremont and we we're commuting out to Redmond Town Centre. So de- it depended, right? But 40 anywhere, minutes, anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 to sometimes an hour. And a toll. It, Anatol, yeah actually in the summer it was quite nice because i could cycle but then that would take like an hour and a half even if i took the cycle bus out of the way
0: that's a nice Um, that's a nice bike ride
1: yeah it is a nice route because we were right on the gilman trail so we could just jump on and then kind of go all the way over 520 Uh, right down to redmond town center but then coming back there's a a vicious hill (laughs) and i'm so i'd be cycling up it and i'd be like i i get to do this i don't have to do this (laughs) i chose to do this you know i'm
0: trying to like remember perspective man yeah keeping keeping the ticket healthy trying to get into those retirement years you know right well and especially yeah you know with with a little one and it's it
1: makes you think like wow you know like when she's 40 i will it
0: would be cool if I was still around. I'd be pretty old then. <laughs> I'm with you on that, right? It's trying to last and to, to see what it is, right? The, the pros and cons of having kids younger or later in life, having, you haven't given yourself a chance to enjoy your younger years or your earlier years. Yeah. To come out on this end now and be able to kind of mentor and give back with all of your experience, which is vast because. Last I saw, my friend, I saw you at that principal level, principal software architect level. And mm-hmm. I think you are the first software architect on the podcast. So congratulations <laughs> and welcome, man. Well, thank you. Yeah. you know. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned the title because there's,
1: it's kind of, yeah, I don't think I really like necessarily legit qualify as an architect, but, you know, and also architect means different things. So basically we kind of had a reorg internally. And I ended up with that title, but it didn't really change what I do. Um, which maybe kind of brings us on smoothly to the topic of what is it? What is it exactly
0: that I do? Yeah, man, what the <laughs> heck are you doing today? I know you're at Microsoft. Are you at Mojang Studios? I am at Mojang Studios. Yes.
1: And so yeah, I'm despite my title, ostensibly being architects, I think I would be more accurately classified as a software engineering lead. Okay. Um, I've Um, always
0: wondered, right. I've always wondered like how much different is architect from pure engineering, but it seems like they can, you kind of overlap pretty, pretty heavily.
1: Yeah, well, there's a meetup that I attend called the Seattle Software Crafters meetup. They oh, have cool. some really good speakers. They're not games industry, but they, they just have some really cool speakers. And so I'm kind of in this sort of like, you know, agile bubble uh, where we all think that test <laughs> and development is a good idea and et cetera, et cetera. But it, there was a thread on their Slack about is the architect role anti agile? Ooh. And consensus was generally yes, because I don't know, like, I think. And it really depends, right, because it can be used in in so many different ways and different companies apply it differently. But in the old school sense of, you know, you need someone special to, like, design the system and all the interactions between it and then tell other people how to do it, right? So the ivory tower architect, like, I think that's, like, it's kind of a a big anti-pattern. I don't do that. I don't actually know anyone who does that. But it's kind of, like, from the days when it was, like, you know, the... Business requirements person will determine the requirements and then the requirements will be converted to user stories and then the the architect will design the, the interactions and then mm-hmm. the project program manager will take those and convert them into time estimates and then developers will work on the things and produce the stuff right anyway suffice it to say i don't do that but i'm on the perfect kind of game code side yeah my background is uh, gameplay programming the fun stuff man yeah it is the fun stuff or at least it used to be
0: Oh, talk to me about how... Your team is structured in that massive live beast that is Minecraft.
1: Let me give you the journey of how my team got created. So I was on the the gameplay team for Minecraft and we had a reorganization and the gameplay team got moved to a different location in a different country. And so the people on the gameplay team were then needing to find something to do. And so I had a background in automated testing as well as gameplay programming. And I care a lot about
0: the code that I write working, right, and being able to shown that it works wait isn't that like a a staple of all engineers that uh, (laughs) they're called to work it's a good point
1: by saying that i don't mean to imply that people don't care about that but it matters to me to particularly apply some techniques that help me ensure that's the case namely putting tests on stuff automated tests and so I had noticed while I was on the gameplay team that although we had a test framework, and even though I was highly motivated to write tests and I tried really hard, I was not able to actually write any tests.
0: Even despite like it being a goal and you couldn't.
1: Right. I did a GDC talk last year where I kind of go into some of the reasons for that. But suffice it to say, we didn't have a framework that worked for us. Well, let's plug
0: that GDC talk because that was a pretty cool one called Hold on one second. I got to have a terrible name. You're going to embarrass me with the terrible <laughs> name. <laughs> Yo, it's funny because when I typed it into the search bar, it was like all these different keywords, right? It's just like, oh, you, do you mean this talk? Do you mean this talk? Do you mean this talk? Like, no damn it! So it was called lessons learned in
1: adapting the Sea of Thieves automated testing methodology to Minecraft.
0: You know what I like about that one is it's going to get hits from all different angles like if someone's searching for talks on any of those topics <laughs> your talk is going to come up so that's like SEO at its mastery
1: Yeah that was completely accidental though I mean, it was basically like <laughs> at the time that you know you, I was submitting the pitch I was like I wasn't actually really sure what the structure of the talk was going to be. You know, like I said, like, this is the outline. This is what I want to convey, but I hadn't like prepared the talk, which actually I learned as a, as a pro GDC tip, uh, is do not wait for them to confirm that they want you to speak before you start preparing the talk <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> just start as if they're going to say yes.
0: Yeah. Plan for the good news. I definitely yeah. remember going up to the deadline at the end of 2020. Like it was, I don't know, end of the year or something like that. And I was filling out that long, long, long form, trying to get all the details in and maximizing the character limits or even having to trim out some stuff just to come in under the character limits. Yeah, in putting the talk together, they were very nice to me and they let me have a week extra because oh, wow. I, what I
1: also had forgotten was going to happen was that I was going to have a baby. Forgot. <laughs> it was like in between how when I pitched the talk and when they said, sure, we'd like the talk, I'd had a baby. So I had up some stuff. It was weird because I actually, for my talk where I was basically saying, here's how you avoid crunching, I actually had to crunch to finish the talk because I was just, bu- you know, I was busy during the days with Grace and, you know, I just would stay up till midnight some days to to just have time to work on it, which I don't normally do. I normally am very against that, but it just, it happened to work out. That was the only time I had. So there's a slight irony.
0: There is man, but you know, there is a greater good in there is, is sharing this key piece with the industry. I myself am very interested in this coming to games. The little bit of graduate courses I took for engineering. It's a staple thing. Any code you write, any framework, any system. You write a unit test for it like one-to-one and, and that way as the your code base grows, the tests grow and, and things are kind of like stable and keeping each other in check for the most part. But mm-hmm. from what I've seen or realized is testing is a complete automated testing. Let's be specific, right? Automated testing is just now really getting a foothold in the industry. But I don't know, is that, is that what you've seen? There's a ton of interest, but not many people
1: are really doing it, or if they are, they aren't talking a ton about it, or they're kind of taking this sort of very high-level automation approach. Well, I cover in the talk, there's this thing where like, anytime that we sit down and we're like, okay, I want to write automated tests for a game. How might I do that? Like, we yeah. always think about our experience manually testing the game.
0: Yeah, and then try to write like a bot to do the right, manual Right, right,
1: exactly. Yeah. We're like, oh, maybe I could do an automated playthrough or maybe I could like load into a world and then I could like walk a bit and then I could like equip something and do a thing. Yeah. The problem is, it turns out, that's a big anti-pattern in automated testing because it's extremely expensive to run and extremely flaky. Flaky meaning that it's may pass or it may fail. So it's very hard to trust it. They talk about the test pyramid and the idea of the pyramid is, and people interpret it differently, but the the main idea is that, you know, so it's like a pyramid with layers in it. And up at the top, you've got like your kind of high level tests, like we just were talking about. And then down at the bottom, you've got your low level tests. Like I call a function and I check that it returned Mm -hmm. the right number. Yeah, And the idea is that the higher up the pyramid you go, the more expensive and less reliable those tests become. But the key message of the pyramid is you do need something at each of those layers, right? That's actually a mistake that we made on Sea of Thieves was that we kind of over-indexed on the lower layers of the pyramid and kind of forgot about the top part because that was the part where we had so much pain on the previous project, like trying to write tests for that top part. So we're like, okay, if that's rubbish, get it out of here. But you do need some, but then you just have to acknowledge that like, if you're going to over-index anyway, it's better to do that than the top, which is where most people go. The bigger part of the pyramid makes sense to me. Yeah, and actually what we depicted as for games purposes is like we put like this cloud on top of the pyramid that is like manual testing. Okay. So really you've got like this tiny cloud and then the pyramid, right? But then what we have usually is the ice cream cone, which is the upside down
0: pyramid with a massive cloud on top. Oh, I love that imagery for all the reasons. (laughs) (laughs) So the massive cloud is the manual testing and that's kind of the majority of your testing, right? Yeah. And it's so interesting, right? Because I was a gameplay
1: programmer and it never occurred to me that that wasn't how you would test things, right? Like obviously we will send it to manual test and they will test it and tell us if it works. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a mindset shift when you start thinking, oh, Well, actually, there's a ton of things that actually I could write a test for that I'm far more qualified to write a test for than someone who hasn't seen the code.
0: In a recent interview I had with James Kane, who comes from a QA background, there is this disconnect between QA departments having conversations with engineers and there seemed to be kind of a critical middle piece of understanding, right? Like Mm -hmm. the QA kind of had more insight into how the code was written or what systems are talking to what that they can bring the engineer back more useful information and vice versa, right? Like if the engineer could hook Mm. up the QA team with more insight into what code is doing and what it's talking to, that it would make their life a bit easier too. So it's interesting that you say that. It's like you're more qualified, as we all are, on whoever's building anything to Mm. write or build tests or smoke tests or content that will help you find if a system is working or not or doing what it's supposed to do.
1: Right. We have a lot of challenges with games specifically, right? Especially in that because so much behavior is driven from content, which is a problem that I don't think many other like software testing enterprises have.
0: I I would agree. The software tends to be built to do very discrete things Mm -hmm. well. And then that's all it ever has to worry about. It doesn't have to worry about. Well, you know,
1: it can be, you know, like it is very common to end up with, you know, like a not architecturally sound separation of things, (laughs) you know, wherever you go in the software industry, but it's kind of, if you decide that you want to do that, it's kind of easier if you have fewer kind of concerns. And so it doesn't mean that you can't test those things. It just means that you need like a different capability in your testing framework to be able to test those things. So, for example, is a thing that they call asset audits, and it's built on top of the Unreal built-in testing framework, where you can kind of say, hey, here's a piece of code, and I want to run this against, you know, like, generate me a test case for, you know, these, these entries. And so you can then just, like, look at a directory and say, you know, anything that's in this directory, it should have a test, but this test code should run on it. So one of the first things they wrote was like like a mesh complexity oh. check, right? <clears throat> so to avoid like the million poly button problem. Yeah. So basically, you know, it just looks at the asset and says like, for its size, is it reasonably, you know, is its geometry reasonably uncomplicated? Yeah, like how many um, verts or whatever. Right. And so basically, but when you have a system where you can author a test like that, and then you can run it against all of your assets you know, of a particular class or particular type or that are in a certain location, it gives you access now to validate those assets. And if you can validate those assets, then you're, you know, if you didn't do that, let's take the example of the million poly floor panel or button or something. The memory bomb. <laughs> right. Where would you find that? You'd find it because some unfortunate manual tester has been trying to do a playthrough and do their job and then they've encountered a place where like that goes to like one fps and then they log a bug and then now you have to get the bug to someone and they have to try and go there and see it and maybe on the same hardware maybe it was on a console and so you have to go get the build onto a console and then and then like oh okay and then you maybe go and look at the assets and finally you realize what it was right yeah whereas you could have just before the artist ever checked in that asset said hey don't check in this asset it's too complex
0: absolutely nip it in the bud as they say
1: right like right it's really all about faster feedback which actually reminds me i was talking to someone today about you know how how to help empower teams to kind of own their own quality which is really what I do. And we were talking about people not always knowing what they want. (laughs) Maybe not always knowing what they need, right? Absolutely. The classic example is like Henry Ford, right? And if you ask people what they wanted, they just said faster horses. Yeah, there would have never been an automobile. Right, exactly. And so in the case of testing, this has happened, right? to, To me, this is a real thing. If you go to someone and you say, how could I improve your testing experience? They'll say something like, you know, oh, give me a manual tester to come and like sit next to my desk and test my stuff all day. Yeah right? And that's like asking for faster horses, right? Well, how about instead I give you a test framework, and then you can write a test that we can run millions of times a day before anyone checks in any code or assets. Wouldn't that be better? People may not even
0: know the possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, right? Where like live games, it makes total sense that live games are updating all the time, right? Like they need testing to help alleviate these bugs that can come from anywhere. I don't think that Smaller teams don't even consider it, right? They say, hey, we'll outsource it or we'll come back to this after the fact, right? We just kind of got to get this game out and don't see the immediate value in taking the time to build out an automated testing framework.
1: Yeah. It's a really interesting point about doing things that you think will speed things up in the short term, because that also doesn't always even work. I'm thinking about the programming team that I worked with that was like banned from communicating with the designers and artists. When did that happen? So I was at Eurocom, which is a company that doesn't exist anymore. And this is probably the reason why. (laughs) Was this when you were working on Disney universe? Yes. Yeah. So, so we did a lot of work for hire. And so we they, we had like different programming teams. And it was interesting because like each project team had their own completely different culture for the most part. So on the Disney team, you know, we had a certain culture. And then on the team that was working on this other project, they had a slightly different culture. But it was like they were really trying to get stuff done. They were a bit behind and they really wanted to improve things. And so for some reason you know, i found this out from talking to a friend of mine who worked on that programming team and he was like saying oh we have this problem i was like why well, when you ask the designer you're like oh we're well, not allowed to talk to him don't quote me on this but what i had heard was that it was because they perceived that like the bottleneck was the programming team right the programmers were so
0: important that they needed to like avoid all interruption right they were just sit <laughs> and code and produce code well <laughs> on a spreadsheet your burn rate is twice or three times that of a lowly designers burn right right
1: right right and so it's like okay i know what we'll do we'll ban artists and designers from talking to the programmers because the programmers are busy and it's like that's not how software works (laughs) (laughs) especially not games man right but you know i think it was maybe a reaction to the situation that they were in you know it's understandable you know and we all do the best that we can given what we know at the time right but sure you know looking at it now it's quite easy to say wow if things are late the last thing you want to do is like reduce collaboration
0: absolutely
1: i guess i mentioned it because it was on this theme of doing things that are easy versus really solving the problem right it's easy just to say don't talk to those guys but it's harder to say oh is the communication not quite working how can we tweak it like are you communicating the wrong things and that one kind of decision it led to like this whole cascade of really terrible practices so there was like one designer who was a really good programmer and he Built all the stuff that the design team needed in Lua instead of having the programmers build it like they would have liked to if they had known. And so so I, w- I was actually drafted in to help as a designer on that team towards the end. And so it was stuff like, you know, you get an email come out from this designer saying, oh, hey, I updated this script that everyone depends on. And it was just like nightmarish. Like so much unnecessary work was generated by this short-sighted attempt to improve things. And so that's why I'm really interested in like the, the whole flow, right? And I think we can talk more about it, but like there's the kind of the micro view, right? of like. How is automated testing going to help me as an individual developer? But there's also, which is very important when you're thinking about games as a service, is like, what does the whole delivery pipeline look like, right? Like, what does it take to get code out or get assets out? And then you can start applying sort of lean principles to that and saying, Mm. okay, well, actually, it doesn't matter to me if, like, I have... 50 John Diaz's and they're all like burning at max capacity if my (laughs) bottleneck is a localization tester and I only have one of them or something.
0: Yeah. Where is that
1: bottleneck and how do you loosen it up? right and often it's in the testing and it's also an economics thing right because i worked on games where we'd burn them onto a disc only one game we burned it onto a disc and we didn't do any updates (laughs) and that was it then after that it was like dlc and stuff right and that was amazing it was like we never fucking. and in that environment it makes sense to work in the style of like build everything as fast as you can and then set aside a few months to like hammer on it and find all the bugs and fix them just enough to get it out the door and then you're done
0: yeah. But if you're yeah.
1: having to, if you want to
0: release every week, then that no longer works and it also is incredibly expensive. Oh yeah. In practice, right? It's like, hey, we're 99% ready, ready to ship, ready to launch. Like, oh no, we found something. Stop everything, pull it all back, run through the same testing, right? From beginning to end and, mm-hmm. and you rinse, repeat, right? Versus kind of being able to be like, like you said, catch it earlier, identify it at its most basic piece fix that. You know everything else is solid or green and ready, right? You can kind of release that or update those sections. Yeah. You can hold off a section of an update, push it out a week or something like that. Yeah. And
1: I I think you're right. And it it all comes back to faster feedback, right? that's, That's what helps in every case. Like getting feedback faster will always be beneficial. And you know, earlier we were talking about people not knowing what they need. So if I go to someone and they say, oh, I need a manual tester to come and work with me. If I could then say, well, you know, that's not super effective. Tell me, what are you trying to achieve by having that? You know, don't tell me the solution. Tell me what your problem is. And then they might say something like, oh, well, my problem is that they test it overnight and it takes me a day to find out if there's something wrong with it. I'm like, cool, okay, I can work with that, right? Because I have other solutions to that problem. Don't anchor it by focusing on... The solution is more manual testing or closer manual testers. There could be any number of solutions up to and including like using a language feature, for example, to make it so it's impossible to make a certain type of bug.
0: I have to ask, right? I don't get to ask this often because again, you're one of a handful of engineers on the show, if not one of the first two. What language or languages do you primarily work in? C++. The holy grail, man. Yeah, And when I was a tools programmer or doing kind of tool side stuff, mostly C-sharp. Yep, that's the pattern that I see. Yeah. Do, are you a fan of either, or they're both good for what they specifically do? I used to be much more of a C plus C++ fan. I think now,
1: especially with a lot of the additions, most languages are sort of merging together, like they all have roughly similar features. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of more interested now in like, sort of language like types of language you know or like languages that are oriented around functional programming for example that's something functional I know very little about and I'm interested in yeah yeah I mean I think functional programming yep. C++ stereo, is, yeah C+ is it's you know I think it's it's going to be around for a while right because
0: it's it's that good balance of language features combined with mm-hmm. um, all games man I mean like I don't yeah. know a single big game that is not written in C++ right just it allows you to get mm-hmm. as low level as needed when when it's not kind of an embedded language You
1: know, yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess there's like, you know, obviously unity, right? Is, is C sharp
0: sharp. and so it really depends on the kind of game you're making. When I look at unity and everything is written in C sharp, I always look at that as scripting. I don't know why, I don't Mm. know why. Cause it's rare that you actually seeing people modify kind of like low level code they then, really mm. kind of just adding on components or custom things to talk to other things yeah interesting
1: it's curious i don't know where the line is between scripting i mean i know technically you know at the language level some languages are called cool scripting languages you know because they might be you know interpreted or whatever but i guess the other thing it makes me think of is probably javascript
0: will be <laughs> the language of the future right like oh everything goodness. is going javascript my first round at university It was like learn java this is the future right every everything is going to be online and and i was like screw that not listening and then hey games c plus plus yeah c plus way better than java and it all comes full circle because yeah javascript is everywhere everything has like a js version or a python version yeah and i think if you if you were looking today uh well depending on what your goal is
1: right you know things like Lua obviously you know the goal would be like they're very lightweight right they're kind mm-hmm. of cheap to execute but i think javascript gives you if you were doing like modding for example like if you're adding mod support then you might very strongly look at javascript because that's what most people know now and like because yeah. it's because it's the language of the web so and it's also going to be cheaper to hire javascript programmers i imagine it's mm, interesting you know like good luck finding a c++ programmer 10 years from now i mean unless i guess it's kind of big in what is it like the ai and stuff and image processing In terms of language selection, I went C++, I chose my university course specifically because they were one of the few that taught C++, and I knew enough even at that point to know that, you know, you would need C++ to to get a job as a programmer in the games industry.
0: You were set on going to university to study to get into games.
1: Right, yeah, because it was kind of a career change for me. Because, remind me, were you going into law? yeah i had um fallen into the family business that's not a bad business i didn't really know what i wanted to do i wanted to be a, a fighter pilot originally uh, oh see but that's just a cool last job man yeah but i realized that what i actually wanted to do was fly the planes but i was in like i was in air cadets and i got a, a flying scholarship where they paid for half of my private license
0: do you have your pilot's license out of
1: curiosity i have a pilot's license it expired many years ago but i am told that it's not so tough to reactivate but i would need some training yeah we have a friend who has one and so he's like oh yeah you gotta call the the fuzdo which is like the place where they do that or whatever but honestly like it was weird because like i as with many things i kind of enjoyed the the training more than actually having the license like once i got it i was like oh i guess i could." fly around a bit like that seems kind of boring right it's like i enjoy the learning aspect and the training more than i did actually having the qualification
0: tell me about
1: what went through your mind jumping to game programming so you know like flying was my my first love and then didn't really work out and with hindsight that's good because you know i wouldn't have really wanted to kill people and so forth it's a
0: big one especially now
1: right i just wanted to fly the cool planes but it kind of left me not knowing what to do so actually i I had a job at legoland i was like running the rides and stuff over the first time at legoland windsor in england the first time they opened over christmas but it really was just like i didn't know what to do and i kind of was not really very engaged with my academics and so i guess i ended up just kind of falling into working for my mom's law firm Ah, okay tiny tiny law firm
0: it's like the default case right like if you (laughs) (laughs) don't say where what you want to do where you're going to go you're going to fall into the family business
1: yeah yeah i guess so just because you know it's like well if you're not doing anything come and help
0: (laughs) sure sure hey we'll put you to work man yeah
1: you know i started out just making the tea and photocopying and stuff and ended up getting to the point where i was doing the kind of paralegal aspect of the property transactions
0: do you find that there's a big shift in i guess what tea drinking is over in the uk is the state a big coffee drinking country? Is that like, is there just a even split between tea or coffee? I don't know. I, don't I, th- I think like our culture has
1: changed a lot, but certainly when back then, which was like twenty years ago, or whatever, it was still kind of English tea culture, mm-hmm. where you know you just expect at the office that you would just be drinking tea constantly throughout the day, right? Tea, <laughs> yeah. So you know, if you
0: have someone there who's going to bring you tea on a tray, you know, then you take advantage of it. It's just nice too. Like you see the tray coming out on little casts, and it's just it's just nice to take that pause. Yeah,
1: like I knew everyone's mugs that they had. You know, like I knew whose mug was whose and what they liked. Because in, in England at the time, coffee meant instant coffee. Oh, like we weren't really into having coffee machines, right? That would like be ever so fancy. So, and even still now, I think you know most coffee
0: made at home would be instant. Interesting. Okay, so I could see how that would lead to. Hey, tea is just a better drink compared to instant coffee. Yeah. English comedian Dave Gorman.
1: He, he's famous for doing these comedy shows where he does it in front of a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. And so he has one about how coffees rise from a crappy cheap drink to an expensive nice drink. Tea, which was a nice cheap drink, became a crappy expensive drink.
0: I got to watch more of this guy's stuff. Yeah. I have
1: seen him live. Where? Um, In Birmingham. Oh, how was it? It was pretty good. I don't go to a lot of shows and things, so it was it was unusual for me. I think, I think my friend
0: had a spare ticket. It's nice to have a circle of friends that will help you get out of your comfort zone or do things that you wouldn't do if left on your own devices.
1: Yeah, and I'm very much an introvert, so if I'm left on my own devices, I'm just gonna stay home and play games.
0: <laughs> and code. We're gonna jump all over the place because why not? We were talking about your university. Oh yeah, we had talked about choosing the course because of the language. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: When I had first had the opportunity to go to university, I guess, it was all like, you know, you could study history or geography or English or physics or whatever. And it was like really hard to see like how that would map to what you would do. Yeah. So, you know, a few years later, I guess I was about 24 or something. By that time, they had started coming out with like the more vocational degrees, which were like tailored to a career.
0: Yeah, to a specific trade that you can instantly see what you would
1: be end up doing. Right, right. The side effect of that was that there was a ton of them on the market, right? Like there were like 20 games courses all across the country, and especially wow. like the lesser known universities were really pushing them heavily to kind of attract people. So yeah, there, there was it was hard to kind of choose. But I, I went with my course, because it was it was computer games programming, Bachelor of Science, rather than a BA. It was just programming. And it was C++ for the most part, I was kind of really concerned actually about those ones, which were like a mix of everything you'll do one module of like game design and one module of art and 3d modeling and one module of scripting. And it's like, cause what, what does that translate into as a job? You know, like you've done a, a little of everything, but not enough to be an awesome modeler, not enough to be an awesome programmer.
0: Mm-hmm it feels like you would have to find something to do after you get out of there, right? So it's kind of like a, I don't know, a certificate level in each that you'd have to add something yeah. or maybe you would go into
1: test or production and try and work your way that way. Which a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. but which you could
0: probably do without a degree, maybe. Certainly at the time, you probably could still have. To. I'd love to understand what it felt like to discover that there was schools that would teach you how to make games because that's kind of where I landed myself as well, right? Like, holy cow, I was reading a, a gaming magazine and what a great place to advertise gaming schools, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, and it's accessible and it's kind of where I have family and I could stay. But before then, nobody that I knew at all was talking about this as a potential career or a way Mm. to make money. And it just felt so far away, right? My image of a developer was a person in Japan working for Nintendo. Or even when I think about computer games, when you grow up in the East Coast or Northeast, you just imagine that Silicon Valley or California or Texas are like on another continent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no way near
1: accessible. Yeah, like it's really hard to kind of
0: see how would you get from here to there. I don't think that people listening to this today can appreciate the world that it was back then, right? Like, hey, we're all connected by the mm-hmm. internet, right? Yeah. We can be all like, talk I could to just download
1: other. Unity and make a game.
0: Yeah. Like that you can interface with us and, and have a conversation yeah. on a discord or via Twitter and get direct insight or feedback.
1: Yeah. Or I can go on YouTube and see like, you know, oh my hundreds gosh. of hours of like amazing education.
0: I love YouTube. I joke that it's what the promise of the matrix was right, like, hey, you can mm. just download into your brain directly, <laughs> right, right, the the program to be a pilot or, or learn how to shoot guns. It's as close as we're gonna get for the immediate future, right? Of like, yeah, it's all on YouTube. You just gotta put the time into. Right. Yeah. If there's something that you want to learn how to
1: do, you can, you can find out.
0: I'm curious when you saw that, Hey, there's universities teaching how to program for games and you're like, Oh, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to go sign up for that. So the context of it was
1: that like I had, I had been doing this paralegal thing, I'd worked at a few other companies and I really didn't like it that much. Like it was so boring and repetitive. (laughs) It was basically, you know, you would process the same paperwork over and over again. And the only interesting bit was like, occasionally there would be some covenant or something on the land that we would then go and research about or whatever anyway i was like screw this i'm done and i quit my job and then i was like oh now i need to figure out something else to do
0: <laughs> how, how is that telling your parents that you're
1: quitting i actually wasn't on good terms with them at the time so i did not <laughs> tell them easy. yeah oh, it was easy just, yeah we were not actually talking
0: <laughs> at that time you ghosted your parents on the job Basically, uh, yeah. That hurt, you know, like, yo, where's the
1: tea? i would made some other life choices that you know were not approved of. So we were not really um, speaking at the time.
0: As we do in our youth, we got to find ourselves, right? Yeah. And usually it's like by pushing in the opposite direction of where our parents want us to go. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was
1: tied up in it as well to some extent. But suffice it to say, I was like, okay, fine. I want to, up, I want to pursue my dreams, you know? And so I was like, I want to go to art school. So as, as I sit here as a programmer saying that, it sounds kind of silly, but <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is this, the unicorn. This, this, yeah, this is what I want to do. But then I was like, oh, I'd, I'd never done any like art classes like i had wanted to but like my dad had been like no you can't do that you have to do something like more productive because yeah like i had we got like three options for our high school i guess would be the equivalent like we had a lot of mandatory courses and then you got three that you could choose electives yeah, electives. And so I wanted to do music, art and drama. Wow. And I got All totally the creative sh- ones. Yeah, I got totally shut down. I was like, no, you can't do any of those. They're just a waste of time. I'm not sending you to a fancy school to learn that. And so I ended up doing languages instead. I did Spanish, Latin and Greek as my choices.
0: Is it crazy to say that learning a spoken language is similar to learning a computer programming language? Is there anything that carries over there? It's not completely
1: unrelated. I will say a lot of like learning to program in quotes is not so much the language as like Mm. how to, how you think about it. Mm -hmm. And then the language is kind of like that layer, you know, and you can, it could be any language, right? But it's like some sort of constructs beneath that. But yeah, I guess it was kind of similar to, there are rules about how it works. It's easier in a lot of ways than,
0: than human languages. For people looking on the outside, looking into game development and, you know, they know, Hey, there's art and art makes more sense to me. It's visual. Mm -hmm. And there's programming, and it's either kind of a binary, like, yes, I want to do that, or I have a logical brain, or no, I don't, right? It's kind of like Mm. intimidating or even off-putting. What would you say to people about programming? Because I think that's something worth discussing is it's not just about sitting down on a computer and writing code. Honestly, in modern development,
1: that's like a very minor part of it. You know, there's all sorts of like collaboration, because you can't do any kind of serious software on your own. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. having the skills to collaborate is also a huge thing. I would love to see more creative people coding. I definitely don't think it should be the preserve of like logical brain people, because you know, like we know that that diversity in all forms increases success. I, I think it's actually being the programmer who can also talk to designers and artists. Those are the people who are the leads. Those are the people who are going to do well, right? And be super, super in demand.
0: Highly in demand, right? Well compensated, highly recruited, right? Get the emails every other month right i know someone who is like totally the
1: programmer stereotype right like he just loves to like get in and dig into the problem and really pull it apart and he's absolutely the guy that i want dealing with like the crazy crash that happens one out of ten thousand times in this one place right like because he will go in he will totally understand the situation he'll spend all the time it needs to dig in i would get bored by that and he will kind of come he'll like he'll know everything and he'll be able to kind of tell you what it is yeah. Which even in itself, that's a really nice skill. It takes lots of different kinds of people. There's not just one kind of program and different people work on different things, right? Some people like him might work on really deep engine stuff. That's other people who might work much closer to the scripting layer or kind of like the gameplay systems layer or even be scripting people.
0: Yeah. As an engineer, or as an architect in your role, I'm curious, how often do you get to interface with some of the other disciplines? Are you sitting mostly Hmm. with your engineering team? Do you liaise with some of like the PR marketing or some of the biz dev or designers, artists? What does that look like at Microsoft or on Minecraft?
1: So Minecraft is kind of interesting because we don't really have content like most games do. Like we don't. Oh, have, like, is it because ke- the
0: players kind of generate the content? Right, but like also we
1: don't have like terabytes of animations and stuff, right? Like a lot of that stuff was like originally hard coded. You know, we're like in the in the order of like a few hundred megabytes, right, for our bills. This is
0: So interesting. Yeah, you know, those damn voxels. Yeah,
1: but it also means that there's there's kind of few creative folks to liaise with, I guess. The answer I would give you would depend greatly on where I was in the group. So if I was to answer you right now today, I'd spend time talking with my team like who Mm. you report to me and like so there's a guy there who basically is running the team now because he's really good is that like an
0: engineering manager
1: or like a lead engineer yeah like a tech lead we call it basically someone who is on the team but he's like stepping up as the technical leader but without having any people management responsibilities kind of one of those people we were just talking about actually right someone who is not just a coder but someone who also has other things right and everyone has different Actually, I've been a people manager for a few years now, which I didn't think I would ever really want to do, but I actually find it super fascinating and amazing because it's like getting to know in more detail, like what makes people tick and like what their particular skills are and being able to ask them and have conversations about that rather than just yeah. guess. I think it's an overlooked piece of the puzzle, especially in like the modern world where we're kind of heading more towards this like commoditization. <laughs> Basically the idea being we're in the games industry because we're really passionate people, individuals, mm-hmm. right? And there's we have a spark and we're humans. I love when a team can lean into that and leverage all of those incredible unique humans on the team versus as you reach you know very large scale, there becomes more and more economic incentive to just kind of treat people as interchangeable parts, right like mm. a, a programmer, a, a programmer too and not really I don't I don't want to be harsh or dismissive of like those practices, but especially where it's like, you know, oh, we're going to outsource this entire thing, or we're going to have yeah. a team. A team will come in and make this thing for us and then leave. Those kind of things where it like, it treats it as like, as a transaction. Whereas I think you get much more benefit where the team is a high-performing unit and they can kind of
0: work on anything. But that's the way, right? Like I'm going to quote Mandalorian, <laughs> that is the damn way where I've seen a few different places that just kind of hire year round continuously where they're like, Hey, if you don't see a role that fits what you're looking to do, Send us your resume anyway, and they kind of interview for, are you a culture fit for the type of people that we look for? It's just good to have that process. And then you bring people on and they kind of find a way to, to contribute. On the other end, like we were talking about is, hey, we're looking for a crack shot, latest Python, back-end, full-stack developer and, and they have to know all these things or else we don't want to talk to them. Right. I mm-hmm. it's I'm with you in the future of you just want to bring in people that have a good problem solving mind that are interesting people that you can put them in a room and They can have a conversation or be able to kind of express an idea or listen and help contribute to (laughs) like a group cooking session of like a brainstorm or something like that. And the other way of looking at it, I guess, is that, you know, not everyone might
1: enjoy working that way, right? Some people might prefer Mm, working in the kind of, you know, I'm kind of a cog and I clock in and clock out, but it's a big enough space that there's, there's room for everyone, right? I don't think anyone should be kind of
0: worried there won't be a role for them. It just might not be at the company that they had really hoped it would be at. That's a good way to look at it for sure. I think something that I wish I could have told the younger version of me is to not be picky and, and apply mm-hmm. everywhere and talk to everybody and try to build a relationship with any developer where you can have a shot or a chance to build something. Well, I think also like you, you kind of come to learn more about yourself and what motivates you. So like,
1: I, I know about myself now that I have a really hard time working on stuff that i'm not interested in (laughs) which is not like necessarily the best trade but like say for example if i was to go work on you know database software okay you know like sure i could do the, the same stuff that i do you know it's yes, I could do that, but I just wouldn't feel a passion for it. And I know that when I don't feel that, then I don't do the best job that I could do. And then I'm, you know, then people think I'm not very good. <laughs> so one one thing I like about the games industry is it tends to attract really passionate people. Yeah, it's really kind of a privilege to work with people in the games industry, and. I haven't had a ton of experience outside of the games industry, but I think it's fair to say we tend to have really good people, not only because it's like, you know, there's a limited number of roles versus the kind of the people who want to get into them. A lot of people really aspire to work in the games industry without necessarily really understanding what
0: it is or why. I certainly did. (laughs) I didn't know anything about what I was getting into. Talk to me about that. Like when you graduated and now you have some C++ game programming background. And you got your first job. Well, let's take a step back Hmm. before you even graduated. You have something you guys talk about, or you just kind of put me onto the terminology that is called a sandwich degree. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. So, And it's probably an English thing, but it's basically normally our bachelor's degrees are three years because we have an extra year of high school, basically. Oh, okay. So it's is why ours are three rather than four years. And so in a sandwich degree, you study for two years and then you spend a year working and then you come back and do your final year. And for me, that was it was so awesome to do that. I certainly came back to that final year being like, oh, I know C++ now. Whereas like when I went in, I was like, I really didn't. But just using it every day on a Mm -hmm. a real game. And I was super fortunate because I worked on a project that was one year long. (laughs) And I was like there from the beginning right through to the end. This was Dead Space Extraction for the Wii? yes you know and so then i was able to say i worked on a project for its whole life cycle and and it was a relatively small team and so like i owned significant systems like i owned the weapons system and stuff like that so it was yeah it was just a ton of learning (laughs) it was like this is amazing it's still my favorite project that i've ever worked on
0: gameplay programming is the rare time where i think i can visualize and understand some of the key code that goes into it right like uh, a lot of vector math and 3D space to 2D space and applying angles and calculations for trajectory and kind of uh, collision detection and things like that. I'd love for you to share a bit of your takeaways from that project in terms of what you did day mm. day in, day out for people being like, okay, programming is coding or, or problem solving. I, I I still don't get it, right? Like mm-hmm. what were you doing at the job? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So, I mean, as a game programmer, you're working on top of an engine, right? So you're working on a, an existing code base that offers certain abilities, like the ability to spawn a, an actor and, you know, that then the, set the actor to have a certain look. And then that will load meshes and textures and stuff that have been authored by a content creator. And then it's in the world. And then, you know, you can also then write code that would like respond to inputs, and then and then, and then you would then say, when I get the input, then I'm going to call this function that's going to make the character move, that kind of thing. In the context of the weapon system on Dead Space, it kind of came to me in the form of a spreadsheet. <laughs> it was like, oh, did it? No, it was a design doc. Um, Right. Yeah. The engine that we had, like spreadsheets were an asset type, right? So like I kind of had a spreadsheet that I made a row for each weapon and then the columns were like things about the weapon. So, you know, like its name or like the ID for its name that would be localized, what mesh it used, what sounds it had for various things.
0: Yeah. I'm going to challenge you, man. Cause mm. I, I've been in a lot of weapon systems throughout the years Yeah, and do you remember some of the other columns on that weapon sheet? Obviously, damage that it does, right? Mm-hmm. How, like, if it has a projectile, like what type it is. Like, is it a
1: is it a physics? Projectile? I had one that was a physics projectile. Is that like co- a rocket. Versus it was. It's bullet. like a it's like a grenade launcher thing. So you like mm-hmm. pop it out and it bounces around and then explodes after a while. So it's like, what actor should it create as the projectile? Maybe some parameters. I can't read this. A long time ago.
0: A long time ago. Well, then,
1: like some, like for example, in Dead Space, you, one of them is like the line cutter thing. So it's like this yeah. big blue line, right? And so the underlying thing for that was a lozenge in the physics system, rather than a, you know, like a capsule or whatever.
0: Oh, wait, 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 wait. okay. Because a capsule is kind of capsule. Caps- capsule is the
1: it's like a, a sphere, the but then you pull it apart. Yeah, a pill. Yeah, and so when you say a lozenge. The lozenge is basically like you pull the pill out, but then you also pull it back. So it's like a a flat rectangle thing with a surround. At least that's as far as I remember. But I remember that particularly because that was when I learned about how useful debug draw is oh god yes thank (laughs) you that's a big one i was using this thing and i was like it's just not working like i see it i see the projectile passing through you know the monster's legs but the legs don't fall off what's happening Mm -hmm. and so then i couldn't figure it out but then i was i was able to draw it and then that was when i realized that the lozenge i had like inverted it. So like, it was like an invalid lozenge. It was like inside out or something. So it wasn't
0: like matching the collision. There's so much math and physics bugs happen because you do the operations in a reverse order, right? So you end up having negatives and you think like, oh yeah, it should still do something like, no, it's completely invalid or garbage data.
1: Yeah. And what I've learned is that, like, as a human, I'm really bad at, like, knowing that stuff, right? So, it's to this kind of stereotype of a coder as someone who's, like, they're super logical and they can work it all out. We can't do that, right? <laughs> you know, like, the classic thing is, like, as you're reading code, you're kind of building up this, like, stack of, like, context and so that's why like if someone interrupts you (laughs) it's like oh no i lost all that context yeah Yeah. but then like the really cool thing which i didn't know this originally but the really cool thing is there are a bunch of techniques that let you break it up into much smaller pieces and that's really what all of like programming is about it's like breaking up stuff that you can't understand into things that are small enough that you understand because there's this other thing as well of like it's always harder to debug something than it is to write it
0: absolutely So by
1: definition if you
0: write the most complicated thing you can hold in your head then you will be incapable of debugging it. And you who wrote it, yeah, you who wrote it will be incapable of debugging it. So imagine what tends to happen in most of development is you end up in someone else's code base and you have to extend that or carry it forward. And I always hear, right, the first knee jerk reaction is like, man, the time it's going to take me for me to figure this out and debug it, I'm better off writing it myself from scratch. Right. right. And it's it's interesting because
1: it's very hard to write readable code. It's very hard. It's very worthwhile, but it's a lot harder than people think. And it's more than just writing comments.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There's like self-commenting code, descriptive variable names, function names that actually say what the hell they're doing and yeah. what they take in. Yeah. Functions that are small, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. a function that's mm-hmm. hundred lines long, it's almost certainly doing more than one thing. You have a vast background I love going back to like your early gameplay programming days and seeing that you can recall that stuff, right? Because it's, it's very visual. I think you touched on something super important for people to realize is that programming is also has its visual outlets, right? Like designers or anybody working in a code base will always benefit from robust debugging capabilities, right? Yeah, and, absolutely you have a big hand or a big part in helping bring this visual layer to some of these systems.
1: Yeah. You see that as programmers mature in the industry, like you see that becomes more and more in their minds, right? They're thinking more and more about like the ramifications <laughs> of what they write. Because initially you start out and you're just like, oh, you know, if, if I could write this thing and it did what it's supposed to do, oh, I feel like I did a good job, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Wow, that was really
0: hard. But then you have thinking about like, okay, but what does that mean to the people who use this thing? Mm-hmm. Did I even solve their problem? It goes back to that thing that you were talking about that makes automated testing so powerful, right? Is you increase the speed of the feedback coming back to you, right? So, so imagine as you're writing this tool or the system that, you know, in lieu of having the designer be like, Ooh, that would be helpful or extend that, or give me a lever to expose the shape and let me be able to pause it halfway and tune it and tweak it and then press play and resume things like that is how can you increase? the rate at which you get feedback for the decisions you're making.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point actually is about, so even if I'm writing code and I'm writing tests, you know, that support my code as I'm writing the code, yeah, thinking then again about like the people who use this system, how are they going to validate their changes? I think that's also a really important lens. The other thing I'll say, which I mentioned in my GDC talk, I feel like there's like this moment where people suddenly get it with automated testing. And what it is is when it's the first time that a test you write catches a bug. Mm. So I had that experience myself. I was kind of teaching myself to do test run development, and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, I didn't really get it. But then I, w- I was writing, I think it was some serialization code. So code that you know will take some object and serialize it to a file or whatever, so that on, and deserialize it from a file and load it into
0: memory. I always call serialization like a save mechanism or like a save load kind of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so I forget
1: exactly what the context was, but it was like, you know, I, I was writing this thing and it would serialize different types. And for the Boolean type, I was writing my test as I went, And I was like, surely I can just do one, right? Like I could just do true or I could just pick one, right? Do I really need to do both? It was just unit tests, right? So they're super cheap. Like they run in like sub milliseconds. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write it and see what happens. And then it was like, bam, fail. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Like if I had not written that, because I I was like, I don't think I need to write that test, right? Like I, Mm -hmm. I can't see why it would be different if it was false versus true. But this is kind of to my point of like, humans are really bad at knowing what code does. Uh, So I wrote this test and then it failed. Yes, I got that feedback, but also I got like, wow, what have I been doing all this time? Like I've written a bunch of code without tests. I don't know if it worked or not. Yeah, (laughs) Because I thought that that code worked when I wrote it, right? It was only when I wrote the test and it failed that that I, I was like, Oh, okay. Now that I look, I can yeah, I can see why that would be totally wrong. And I would much rather find that out now rather than like two months from now, when mm. some artist has been using my system and the saves and they try and load this stuff, and this bug happens, and then and you know it's like two days before release or whatever, and then you know now I find out. At that point that it was like that epiphany of I can totally see the clear benefit that spending my time writing tests has for me. And I've seen that with so many other people, right? Like everyone that I teach to write tests. yeah. It's that, it's that moment. And then they come to me and they're like, my test found a bug. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and they're so excited. And I'm like, that's awesome. And so a lot of like my strategy when I'm trying to like introduce people to testing is to try and get them to that point as soon as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. You bring up something that it makes it so obvious is there's that case where it finds a bug in your code that you can then fix. But how much better does it get when it exposes bugs in someone else's code, right? Like when they're in there extending a system and they are done and they did all their side, now they got to run the tests and the build machine returns back like, Hey, it failed these X, Y, Z tests, go check it out. Right. Then you get a message. You'd be like, yo, Henry. I'm failing your test, bro. Help me figure this out. Right. I'm sure that kind of like, yes, my officer or my (laughs) cop did its job. right? Yeah. And also also like
1: it's, we were talking about readability, right. And documentation and tests if written well, tests can offer that as well. So like after I had moved to the United States, I left rare and like a few months later, someone just pinged me who I'd worked with there saying, oh, Hey, I'm modifying like the voice chat system that you worked on thanks for the tests because they really helped me understand how it worked was that sea of thieves yes and so like yeah the the fact that like a test exists that says you know when i do this thing I expect this thing to happen. Like mm-hmm. in, in itself can be really useful, right? If you look someone, if you are look at a system you don't know and you're like, oh, well, okay, I can see that the test case should do this in this
0: case and this in this case. Uh, yeah. Self-documenting code. Yeah. The few unit tests I've seen do kind of explicitly tell you like, this is the expected results for this input. This is what you should get. And so an experienced engineer can reverse engineer that to be like, I'm not getting these results. Let me step through a debugger, see the value. Oh, Found my issue. So there's a system called Gherkin.
1: It's a language and it's basically like a human readable test specification. So it will okay. look something like, you know, given I spawn a whatever, and when I kick it with my foot, then it should explode. And so it's part of a practice called behavior driven development, which is where, you know, your designer or whoever is kind of specifying the behavior would write literally something like this. And then you can implement it and actually turn it into an executable specification with the caveat that I've never seen that work. <laughs> I tried it. I tried it on Connect
0: Sports Rivals. I was like, this is going to be great. <laughs> it's easier to talk it through for sure. Right. I yeah. see just to say, Hey, this is the behavior I expect. Then you have it and Hey, turn that into a test. And there were two things that made it not work. The one was that the
1: specification never survived the implementation, right? So if it would be like, given I see a creeper and it walks near me, it explodes. In the process of the implementation, to try and make that, you would have to end up doing something like, when I launch the game and I load into a level and I create this and I'm in survival mode, and it just becomes really long and too unreadable.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh,
1: And the other thing was that the way that I had it implemented was really high friction for programmers. So basically we were saying to programmers, hey, you should use this thing, it's really cool. Right, but what actually it was, was, hey, you should use this thing. And what it means is, go open a new Visual Studio solution, and go write some C Sharp code, and then go write some Gherkin code, which you also don't know how to use. And then go back to the game and add a hook that you can poke from the C Sharp. And it's like this whole thing, right? And it's like, no yeah. one's going to no do it. And so then the what worked, though, was what we did on Sea of Thieves then was, you know, I'm in Visual Studio, that's where I write my tests. I'm in mm-hmm. the editor, that's where I write my tests in Blueprint. So basically kind of keeping people in their environment, right? So like, it's really like low friction. Because if I'm asking you to do something that you already are kind of suspicious about and you don't really want to do, if I make it super easy for you, you're much more likely to do it than if I make it so you have to like, you know, walk a mile before you can Yeah.
0: That's human nature, right? Like we are naturally lazy. You're going to take shortcuts or not not us, but you know, the brain is going to look for shortcuts wherever it can. And there is a drop-off point if something has too many instructions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you asked actually
1: earlier about like, what's my day-to-day look like? (laughs) Kind of segueing back to that. I don't know if there is a typical day-to-day for me personally. Well, a lot of what I'm thinking about is like in a system like that, how do I make it ridiculously easy to do the right thing. How do I make it so that the right thing is the easy thing to do also?
0: That should be the creed of a game developer, right? When we're looking at whether it's player facing or dev facing, it's like, hey, how do I make this easy to do or the obvious choice or you know, make all the decisions mm-hmm. kind of equally appealing or something yeah. like that. And, and that's from the point of view of a team that's like
1: supporting other teams internally, you know, so like mm-hmm. from a gameplay team's perspective or a gameplay systems team, right? Like who are your customers? They might well be the designers or artists who are, who are consuming the systems you make. But then there's also like the end customer So it's like, how are we empowering people to do their job, which is to produce something that is really cool for the customer.
0: Talk to me about working at Rare and getting a chance to come over to the States to make a jump. Was it still as part of Rare or you jump teams? You're working at Rare. And you have an opportunity to come over here. Was there any differences that you saw in mm. terms of the workplace, the team culture, mm-hmm. communication style, development style? In terms of differences, like we touched on it before with the parental leave, but like certainly
1: the the kind of employment landscape is is kind of different. I remember being really freaked out when I got the kind of contract and it was like employment at will <laughs> you know you made me terminated <laughs> at any time. i was like what that doesn't sound right what is it like in the uk it's pretty hard to fire a permanent employee like they have to do something like negligent or like gross misconduct to warrant being like just straight fired and it, it's really like yeah it doesn't happen a lot you know like if, and if you make someone redundant then you have to like do everything you can to offer them other roles and stuff like that it's a different kind of landscape in terms of like job security i mean having said that I, mean, I don't know if there really is that much difference, right? Because at the end of the day, I was working for a company and the company was clearly about to go bankrupt. And so, like, really, do I have any more job security then than I would have had here, you know, working for a, a company that isn't about to go bankrupt? So, I don't know. This all swings around about. But I appreciated that it was, I had the opportunity to do it, right? Because I think it's, it's quite hard to immigrate to the United States from what I
0: understand. Yeah. What year was this generally? This was 20, 2017. So was that like the Trump era? Yes. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he made it pretty hard <laughs> on like any visas going out.
1: He did. Although, and I, th- I think though, like I was more worried about it than I needed to be, you know, bluntly as, you know, an English speaking white male turning up at the US embassy, like they're not really in the business of turning me away, right? Especially if Microsoft are sponsoring me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think Microsoft has good connections with uh, work visas, yeah. Right. So I was actually much more worried
1: about it than I needed to be, honestly, which I appreciate is, you know, I have significant privilege in being able to you know experience that. But I was super freaked out about it, honestly, because it was like, (laughs) we're offering you this role, it's it's subject to you getting a visa. And then they're like, oh, it could be anywhere from like three months to a year to get the visa.
0: yeah the windows wow. are crazy
1: as it turned out it was three months so you know all i had to do that's quick quick yeah. three months is like the minimal yeah everything was super quick uh, i was eligible because i had worked for a microsoft subsidiary in the uk for more than a year so i was eligible for the all one visa and yeah all i had to do was basically fill in some stuff and the lawyers put some paperwork together i went down to the embassy i was like freaking out
0: i was like they're gonna, <laughs> they're
1: gonna interrogate me
0: they're intimidating it's like their job to make you break it's yeah like, it's like they're constantly looking for a lie or something that's not consistent, right? So right. You can kind of latch on to that. Thing. Well, and I was really worried about it, but in the
1: end, they didn't even really ask me anything, right? They just like took the thing and the lawyer had basically like most of the months that had been in the run up to this, like the three mm-hmm. months was the lawyers going back and forth with me, preparing this letter about like why I was needed and yeah. you know, why Microsoft needed me. And basically the guy at the embassy refused to take that letter. He was like, this isn't part of the forms. So I don't want it. So I was yep. like, okay, so. so by the book, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he just would, so then no one ever even read that letter. It was just purely like on Microsoft say so, but then, I mean, obviously they, you know, they do the, they do the right thing they go by the book, they tick all the boxes and make sure that they can, if they got challenged, they could defend the decision or whatever. It was super easy. I made it hard for myself.
0: <laughs> I'm glad to hear it was easy, Henry. It's not always the case. And I found even in my journey across borders into Canada, stick to a story, stay consistent. State the facts, yeah. right? And, and things should go fine, right? It doesn't hurt to have a gigantic corporation behind you, <laughs> right. lawyers writing all the papers. Yeah, even so, it's like intimidating, right? Because
1: you know, I'd been to settle a few times. And so, like, you know, when you come into America and then, like, they're sitting behind those desks and they have guns and stuff. And it's like, whoa. Then you go to England and, I'm like, well, at least, at least my experience is, when I get back to England is like, it's changed actually since then. But at the time, certainly, I was like, here's my passport and they're like, welcome home. You know, Where it's like I've seen them like grill U.S. citizens.
0: You know? Oh, it happens to me all the time because of my common name anytime i'm mm. coming back into the country it's all i always get the 10th degree like no matter what it's just based off name yeah
1: i just assumed that you know u.s citizens would be treated better. Welcome home. <laughs> but,
0: yeah. like that. Where right you live here like, like right oh,
1: right uh, yeah and so now i have a green card and so i think it's a little bit less complicated but even so i haven't actually been out of the country since i got it so i it's always weird, you know, like there's certain paperwork I have to bring, like even going up to Canada, I had to bring like mm-hmm. this big, this piece of paper that, that was stamped and
0: stuff. So I'm always like freaked out. I'm going to lose it. Is dual citizenship a thing f- that you're considering at all? Like what would you like? well, Yeah,
1: I don't know. I'm not eligible right now. So I think I have okay. to have a green card for a number of years and then I can apply to
0: become a citizen if I want to. Is your child a citizen of the States and of the UK? Yes. Nice. See, that's that's the way. Yeah, (laughs) she's 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 gonna she's gonna have it easy. Hell yeah, come and go as you please. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the way. This is what I do. This is kind of my mission right now is to
1: you know help the games industry mature in terms of how we make products because I think that's going to be really beneficial for everyone. We're going to have better working conditions. We won't have to crunch so much because. And uh, I like say in my talk, right, either we do continuous delivery, which I didn't define yet, but go watch my talk. it. I talk about it. I put the link in the show. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like either we you, like, you, need, you need a vault subscription, right? You do. Yeah. On my LinkedIn, I have an article, which is like kind of a short summary of the nice. Topics. I'll, link, I'll yeah. link that as well. And the
0: two older rare talks are on YouTube now. Let's talk about that Trello board. I, I'll definitely put a link to that, but that's right. like a treasure trove of resources.
1: Yeah. And I put this together just because a lot of people ask me like, where, where can I go to find out more about how to do this kind of stuff? And actually there are a ton of talks and resources and I'm trying to collate them on this Trello board. So yeah, I, I called it the game automated testing resource hub, which is quite grand, but it's, yeah, it's just a Trello with stuff on.
0: Yeah, there's like easily at least 10 great links already here. Yeah. It's and like, there's also links on there articles. to the GDC
1: Automated Testing Roundtables Discord. It's like the main kind of community that I'm aware of where people talk about this kind of stuff. So if you have questions, yeah. people are also welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Like, I know, like, I say this all the time, and hardly anyone ever does. But I actually would love to hear from people for real. You know, if you have questions, if you're like, hey, I'm just a small studio or I'm a master studio and I, I want to know how to do this. Like that that's literally my whole thing i'm very motivated to just try and get this to take off more widely in the industry like we've done it now on cf thieves and on minecraft there's no reason that it can't work for any game mm-hmm. it is a little bit tricky and people what, what people tell me is that they hear a lot of people saying you should do this but they don't hear a lot of like practical advice of how do you do this so that's the mm-hmm. gap that i'm trying to fill hopefully and then in my, my kind of summary pitch is basically like The industry has changed. (laughs) You know, we don't ship games on discs anymore. We ship them constantly. It's only going to get more frequent. And if we're reliant on manual test for the validation, like the for for the very basic validation that our title works, then we're going to have problems, and we're going to end up crunching in order to hit these, you know, release dates. And our customers are going to have a worse experience. So there's really just like all sorts of reasons to to be better at this. And Mm -hmm. I think there is a better way which is continuous delivery with automated testing. And just to clarify, I'm not trying to add additional burden to programmers or put manual testers out of a job. You know, the, the ideal story here is programmers get an awesome tool that helps them get really fast feedback about things that they care about in their code. And manual testing becomes the role it was always advertised to be, where you get to play games all day and give your feedback about like what the customer experience would be of playing this title right? rather than You get to find
0: bizarre ways to plug in and out controllers until you make the game crash. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. See, that's the type of stuff that should be automated and can be automated, right? Like computers do that, Yeah. so that the the humans get to practice their creativity and exploration and, and try things that developers had no clue or inkling that a player would do. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I have great respect for the ingenuity and human skills
1: of our amazing manual testers, and I just want them to not have to be, you know, playing broken games or like executing test scripts over and over again, right? Like but a computer can do that. You don't have to do that. That's sort of a waste of your time. Let's use your time for something that is worthy of the human attention.
0: This is a great treasure trove resource that I'll share a link to. You also mentioned in some of the conversations we've had that you just have this passion for sharing the knowledge you have a youtube channel where you kind of do like live extreme programming
1: yeah it's something that we're, that we're trying out and um, it sounds kind of grand but it's basically like it's pair programming test room development we've done two so far it's me and the guy declan on my team actually we were talking about languages earlier i should have mentioned rust because declan is a huge rustation
0: rust. <laughs> functional programming yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, it's basically just us programming. I'm also hoping to do some kind of more like, you know, find people who want to come on and talk about stuff. So yeah, it's, there's a YouTube channel, but it's all kind of accessible via my LinkedIn. So my LinkedIn is like a good jumping off point for all of this stuff.
0: Excellent. Excellent. We'll push people that way. Well, then my friend, it, the time has flown by and I've learned a bit. I've, le- I've learned more than what I knew coming in, which is awesome. I've connected with you a bit more. There's so many cool things you've done that I wanted to touch on, right? That I want to learn more about just the beast that is Microsoft. There's one cool thing about the future that I just uncovered today. One that if you could talk a bit about. And it started with the question of like, what would you do if there were no limits? What has that turned into for you? I've been telling the
1: story because I think it's interesting from a career development point of view. The key thing being, if you know what you want to do, you have to tell people because until you tell people, you, you won't get any help achieving it. But it's really hard to do, right? Like, because you have imposter syndrome, da, da, da. So basically some tools that Microsoft provides to us is like a career check-in. So as a manager, I do this with people who, who report to me and I did it myself. Part of it is a self-reflection questionnaire. So I fill this thing out. And then when I was done filling out, I was like, oh, there's totally a theme here. And so then the last question is like, if there were no limits, what would you do? And I wrote like this kind of mission statement around like, I would eliminate crunch from the games industry forever by, you know, helping people with the adoption of continuous delivery with automated testing. And we would have unlimited budget and just go into anyone who wanted help and give them money, you know, give them help and education and training and so forth. Sign me up. Yeah, right. I started telling people this was, this was like my goal, and then someone said, "Oh, I know someone who's like trying to put together a team like that inside of Xbox Game Studios." So, long story short, hopefully by the time anyone is listening to this, I will be leading that team. So we have an amazing opportunity to go help all of the studios that we work with. And my personal addition to that is like for me, it doesn't stop there. Like I lo- I-, I would gladly help studios outside of us as well. So if anyone else has questions, like I really do mean it, please contact me.
0: That's wonderful. And I think it'll just kind of give you much more experience to be able to kind of apply these things en masse across all these different types of games built by different developers that have been doing things their own way, of which Xbox Studios are gigantic now, right? It used to be a handful (laughs) of studios, and now it appears to be damn near a quarter, if not more, of the industry when you think about Bethesda Cinemax, and you think about Activision Blizzard, and then you think about everything that was already at Xbox, right? Yeah, like the yeah. team, the 343, Mojang. It's exciting, man. Yeah, and then the other thing is, because all of those studios, they
1: all are probably doing something, right, along these lines. And so having a way to kind of figure out what that is and try and share it, we all would love to share more. But it's when you're trying to ship a product, it's really easy to get caught up in, like, oh, you know, but when the product ships, then we'll go find out. But in this kind of world of games released forever there is no, like, end date. That's when you could benefit from, like, you know, if I know that Jane developer at that studio is working on a thing and then, you know, Sam so-and-so at this studio has a question about that, then I can connect them. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll be able to do more of that kind of stuff and... Mm-hmm. Not only taking knowledge out to people, but also bringing knowledge
0: back and sharing it around. How do you break in at Microsoft? That is a great question. At the time you were at Eurocom, you were working on Disney Universe? Yeah,
1: yeah. And that was the project that I was mentioning that kind of took the company down was happening. And so I was like, I need a new role. So I took a, a contract role at a Microsoft Game Studio. No, at Rare. I had actually been at Lionhead prior to that. I was, yeah, it didn't really work out, some games got canceled, work on tools. And I was like, I want to be a gameplay programmer.
0: It was a whole thing. Oh, okay. So you left, you're like, Hey man, I want to work on a game. project got did, canceled, yeah. which, which happens all the time, right? You get in dream job, dream role, and the rug gets pulled up from underneath you. I was sort of a Lionhead fanboy, right? And I was like, this is my dream job. Da, 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 da. And then like a
1: few months in, I was like, wow. This is not my dream job, and then I went to Eurocom, which I had never even heard of before I started working there. Right, it's not like a big name. Let that be a lesson to you, right? Like... Yeah, yeah. Like the cool, the cool-sounding company that makes the game you love might not be the place that is right for you to work. Was it like a fable game or something? I actually, when I landed there, we were working on Milo and Kate, which I don't know if you remember, like that tech demo for Project Natal, which then became the Kinect. It was like the little boy on the swing, and like you talk to him and stuff. You had asked specifically about how to break in at Microsoft. So the answer is, you know, if you want to be a contractor, keep an eye out for those contract roles. But you know, if you want to be an FTE, then there's a standard process that you must go through, right? Uh, so if you're if you're coming out of college, then you hire, you go through, you you apply through the college process. There's a way that we can tell recruiting, hey, there's someone we're interested in. So for example, I have a mentee right now from the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship, which is uh, just a nonprofit that tries to increase access to tech jobs by funding education for STEM topics. And so for example, you know, if she applied, what I'm told is that there's a mechanism by which I can say, "Oh, we would like to interview her." So, you know, it's worth networking and finding contacts and studios like mojang do a lot of outreach especially we are trying to do better in terms of diversity and inclusion and so we're trying to go to places where we wouldn't necessarily have gone before but having said that you know we do have obviously gazillion applicants so it's pretty tough and also like you may not necessarily get much control over where you end up especially because you know like for example you might come in thinking that you're going to work on halo and then something happens and and then you end up working on you know office or whatever yeah that, that's crazy that's a big shift yeah so, uh, not that, so. I'm not saying, not saying that happens a lot, but certainly, like, there's a guy on my team who's like we kind of rescued from another organization where he had ended up. Like, and he had thought he was coming to Xbox. I try and build relationships with colleges. You know, like there's actually someone I reached out to recently because I came across his blog. He's a lecturer at a college in Indiana. And I noticed he was teaching people Unreal and also test-driven development. And I was like, oh, I'm very interested in talking to you. And so (laughs) so I connected with him and we chatted and they're launching a games program soon. So I'm like, yeah, if there's anything I need help, let me help for you. Let me know. Well, certainly, I'll say there's lots of people who I know of at Microsoft who do all kinds of outreach like that. Right. So there's lots of opportunities to try and get in touch with someone. And if you do have a contact, then that's an opportunity for them to give you advice. And even like what seems to us like super basic advice, I think is really valuable. So, like my mentee that I had a conversation with, she's taking a a web design Mm -hmm. class Mm -hmm. at a local college. And our last conversation, I was just able to give a lot of feedback about her resume in terms of like what, you know, what would someone who is recruiting for a web design role be looking for? Even though I'm not a web designer, I don't really know, right? But. Yeah. I know enough to be able to give an incredible amount of valuable advice. So I guess that my rallying call for people like us is there are tons of these opportunities, right? There's all sorts of nonprofits who will connect you with mentees who you mm-hmm. can have you can just have like two conversations with and be super influential to them and help them overcome those barriers, like not knowing how to put a resume together.
0: Right. That's awesome. It's like put yourself out there and share what you're up to because if it's interesting to you, it will very well be of interest to other people and it helped you find them and connect with them. Right. Like test driven development on unreal systems. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm super interested in like, how can, you know, because I think these skills are going to be really necessary, you know, Mm -hmm. in the coming years, and the more people who have them, the better off we'll all be. And Mm -hmm. so like, I'm really interested in like forming relationships with colleges. So like I did a little talk at USC recently. There wasn't so many people there, but (laughs) you know, we're just
0: trying to make a start and kind of spread the word. Quality over quantity. That's how (laughs) it goes for sure. That's a great point is for a lot of this future facing growth and progress. Is to start at that academic collegiate level, right? Like instill it in them early, so that when they get into the industry, they're kind of preaching it as well and and applying it. You have experience yourself with making a jump from a Microsoft team. You were on Teams.
1: Yeah, that was actually the team that I joined when I moved out here, and the reason was that. When I was working at Rare on Sea of Thieves on all the testing stuff, there was a podcast that I listened to called the AB Testing Podcast with Alan, hey. with Alan Page, who he's the A in the A and B. He literally wrote the book, How We Test Software at Microsoft, which is super out of date, by the way. Don't read it. He would tell you, do not read it. But he's really evolved as testing has changed. So anyway, his podcast was super influential to me. And I met him a couple of times because he worked at Microsoft when I came out to visit and so i saw he was hiring and and i was like yeah i will i want to come and see you know like we've done this on a on a game but i know that you know in the wide world of software you guys are doing bigger and better of this kind of thing so i want to see how the real pros do it <laughs> so neat. that's how i ended up coming to the Microsoft Teams team. And suffice it, you know, I, I say there for, I think, a year or two, but I, suffice it to say, Alan had, had actually left the team. And the team charter kind of changed a bit. And so I ended up basically doing some stuff that wasn't interesting to me. And I didn't feel like I was really learning. And so that was then. Actually, one, one nice thing about even being in a... Even if you accidentally end up on a team that you don't want to be on inside a large company like Microsoft, is that it's quite easy to move internally. Yeah, so i knew someone on minecraft and yeah and there was a role available on the gameplay team and so i kind of moved over
0: from teams to minecraft when it's an internal kind of team shift is the interview process the same does it change at all it is the same in the sense of you still do
1: interviews and i think they do that for you know for equity reasons you know like it should be you shouldn't have an unfair advantage for you know like we want to hire the best people not just people who have the opportunity to apply because they're internal. But having said that, you have the advantage of when you are an employee and you log into the recruiting site, you can see who the hiring manager is. And so you mm-hmm. can then kind of contact them and say, hey, I would like to have an informational with you where you yeah. just have coffee and then they will tell you about the role and you tell them. About it. So it's not an interview, but you get a chance to understand more about the role Heck yeah! than you would if you were just applying for it externally. But actually, that's speaking to, to your question about breaking in. Like if you're able to cultivate a contact at Microsoft, who can maybe provide that information or even reach out to such a hiring manager on your behalf and try and understand if that role is a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. That could be a way to improve your chances of finding a good match.
0: Yeah. Cause uh, back to the point you made earlier about if it's something you're passionate about, it makes it much easier and it's it's not uncommon to read a role, get excited about it and it turn out to be something completely different. Right? So if you can kind of identify that earlier. Things are going to be better off. Yeah. 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 And, you know, if it's like, you know, someone approaches me and they're
1: like, oh, hey, you know, I've, I've, you know, done this project or, you know, I tried to, you know, I I did this indie game and I wrote these tests for it or whatever, super curious to learn more about whatever, you know, then that's like a way to, to show off your work to someone who cares about it. So in the same way as if, you know, if you had, if you were in the field of, you know, and you did something really cool, then you'd want to make, try and make sure that you could be able to and uh, make sure that you know people who are interested in that kind of thing would see it, right? Like so, people who uh-huh. are art leads or whatever or might be hiring.
0: Let's get into the final round and wrap this. All thing right, up. <laughs> we made it, my friends. One question i like to ask is what is the last game that you finished
1: the last game that i finished so right now mass effect legendary edition is on game pass so the last games that i finished very recently were mass effect 2 3 and 1 twice about to finish two again on insanity
0: damn that's hardcore i love hearing
1: that <laughs> yeah i'm kind of achievement hunting in a little bit but i replayed them through and then i was like oh you may i'll try that insanity so I, I got the mass effect one on insanity near the end
0: of mass effect two on insanity i think three is going to be harder but we'll see do you classify yourself as a completionist in that kind of gamer quadrant
1: not always but i can be <laughs> if the game hooks you right it yeah yeah, you really yeah, like.
0: yeah that's awesome I'm a big achievement hunter and Game Pass has kind of re-sparked that.
1: Yeah, actually my my favorite achievement or like the achievement I'm most proud of was this was years ago, but it was like Deus Ex Human Revolution, I think. And yeah, they had that's one, the first one, right? Yeah, the first reboot, I think. Um whatever whichever one that was. But they had yeah. like this it was like three achievements. There was like the whole game on max difficulty, the whole game without killing anyone, and the whole game without being seen. Okay. I did a playthrough and I popped all three of them, and I was like, "This is amazing!"
0: <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. I had to reload a lot of saves. So I'll say, but... oh, that's how you play those <laughs> games. I did the same thing for Dishonored Two, right? It was mm-hmm. like the, the typical stealth playthrough of like never be seen, don't kill anybody, right? No right. lethal takedowns, things yeah. like that. I, but it, I played it the same way, right? It's like do something, fail, reload. <laughs> do yeah. something, get spotted, reload.
1: Yeah, and normally I don't have a great tolerance for that, but just some games like really hook me enough that I'm willing to do that exactly i love it what is the last book you read the last book that i read read in quotes was this book that's on my desk we have this engineering book club and we're reading refactoring by martin fowler so but there's a bit where you the bit that you can read and then it turns into like a reference thing and then i was thinking about this question and actually a a book that i wanted to mention because i thought it was really important when i read it was cast by isabel wilkerson It's kind of a rough read but it's very powerful cast in terms of caste
0: system yes yeah Mm -hmm.
1: it's very good yeah it was recommended by shola richards who comes and talks to us sometimes he's like known for being like the workplace civility guy but it's basically about it's comparing sort of race in america to caste systems in other countries. It's a super interesting lens, especially for me as a foreigner. I learned a ton. So yeah, I highly recommend it.
0: Okay, man, I might have to put that on my list. I don't normally ask this question, but I found it interesting that you have people get to come in or Microsoft invites to give talks or share, share an idea. Curious, what are your favorite perks at Microsoft? I'm curious myself if You guys have like unlimited Game Pass subscriptions or something. We do actually, yeah. So yeah, we have Game Pass (laughs) subscription and you don't even
1: have to work in Xbox for that anymore. We have, you know, free games obviously that we publish, which is nice. One of my favorite ones is we get access to the O'Reilly book library online. Oh
0: yes, that is so worthwhile
1: yeah yeah and there's tons of technical books on there that are really awesome and you can kind of make playlists and stuff so it's, it's yeah i really value
0: that Shout yeah out to all the companies out there if you don't have an o'reilly subscription for your employees look into that it is so worthwhile because yeah these texts generally go for like 40 50 60 right, bucks right if not more yeah mm-hmm.
1: and it's like the, the the ability just to go and just open it and read it on the internet is amazing the access it gives you right because like even your Such most ability. highly paid employee isn't going to go and drop a thousand dollars
0: to read like 10 books <laughs> or exactly whatever. it's a great reference and you can read it from any device right these days you have sso you use your work email and you can access it from any device and it's yeah i gotta check i gotta yeah, look i think it. i really All should uh, give us some kind of uh kickback for for this commercial yes. <laughs> hook, hook up a sponsorship yeah we had it at ea and i haven't checked to see if i have it at epic but i want to yeah but that kind of
1: thing and you know free orca card i guess back when travel was a thing but for those outside of the seattle area that's a bus pass
0: yeah is there an equivalent system in the uk like i forgot what it was yeah it's kind of varies on varies
1: based on region like you got the oyster cards in london
0: and that's what it was it was something with oh i always confuse the two because it's (laughs) like orca oyster i was like damn it i'm gonna say the wrong one yeah yeah that's what it was
1: but yeah, and That's then nice. other, other than that, I mean, yeah, they have a ton of great benefits. Like medical insurance is wonderful. I am aware of that now. <laughs> uh, I hadn't, you know, hadn't really thought of it. But yeah, it's certainly very nice to have to have that coverage, and they cover a lot of things, really? including fertility benefits, which it's is un- which is un- un- unusual, highly valuable. They also cover, I haven't taken advantage of this yet, but they'll pay a significant amount of money annually towards you getting a degree or, you know, if you want to get a master's or something.
0: Yeah, that's um, huge. That's huge for people coming out of school, right? Yeah. It's like a lot of people kind of postpone going into work because oh, I want to get my master's or a graduate degree. Yeah. It's like, hey, man come get a job and get that part of your education paid for, if it fits the role, right? If yeah. it's going to benefit what you're doing for the company.
1: Yeah. And then also, you know, like the 401k with the 50% match with no vesting period for like the English viewers or listeners, if there are any, they're like, I don't know what we're talking about right now, but you know, for the, the yeah,
0: yeah. U.S. The a the pension. Pension. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, for
1: life. Yeah. But still so matching doing half it? of your contributions to a pension. It's still, you know, I've never heard of that. That's, that's really quite, quite good. Yeah, I'm
0: going to, I'm going to stop you off, man. Pretty yeah. people <laughs> you have to cut me off or I'll just keep yeah. selling, selling Microsoft benefits all day long. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great, great stuff though. I appreciate it. What would you make if you had a small team and enough money to give you runway for three years? Ooh, that's a great question. I probably wouldn't make a
1: thing. Uh, I wouldn't make a product. I would probably well and what I'm gonna try and do is make a package of like education and information as well as tools
0: that we can hopefully, you know, use to accelerate people's progress in adopting testing. Fantastic. Well, my friend, last question, and if you heard the podcast before, you know what's coming is Oh no, 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 I'm sorry, sorry. Let me stop. There's a new question that (laughs) A new one. There's a new one that I meant to start inserting before there, right? And it's, it's an opportunity to call out anybody who has been very influential to you in your line of work or getting in the industry or as a developer that you want to cite or give credit or, as the cool kids say, give their flowers. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a new one of me. I hadn't heard that one. I'm not cool. It, it, it's an expression that comes from... More often than not, it takes someone passing away for you to go place flowers on the oh, rageddon. It's okay, like, right, give right. it to them while they're alive. Yeah. Interesting. So I haven't, I haven't
1: pre-thought about this one, but so def- that's a good question. Definitely people who spring to mind are John Sear and Adam Russell, who were lecturers who ran the computer games programming course at Derby that, you know, they, they're kind of fighting their management chain to insist on giving like a rigorous education was actually actually super beneficial, I think, for all of us who actually ended up graduating. And yeah. I think probably all of those people are still in the industry. So I think they had a huge oh, yeah. impact. yeah,
0: so John Sear and Adam Russell, yeah. in the off chance that they get to listen to this <laughs> podcast, yeah. there you go. I, and there's tons of
1: other people I could mention, of course, but you know, I think- On the spot. i think, Especially I'll, thinking about education and stuff, I think I would definitely, definitely call those guys out.
0: Heck, yeah, man. I think educators don't get enough love and credit for what it is that they do and the seeds that they place in all of us to get where we are and spread the knowledge. And so I'm glad that you called them out and hopefully they get to hear this. Now, (laughs) if you listen to the podcast, you know what's coming, my friend. Who would you nominate to fall out of the play area behind you?
1: Well, that's a great question. Also, I've been thinking about it. And there's, there's a, honestly lots of people <laughs> I would nominate. The backlog is getting full. But yeah, like, but I, I think it would be really interesting for you to chat with Phil Baker. So Phil was the tech director at Rare when we were working on Sea of Thieves. So he was a huge influence in the, the move to continuous delivery. He really kind of presided over that. He had some really awesome like philosophies, like for example, it should be easier to write a test than not to write a test. And so I think he's he's basically even in just doing that he's been super influential in spreading this kind of philosophy through the games industry, and then he now works at Improbable yeah. and hired a ton of people from Rare. <laughs> so, I think As he I do. think he might have a really
0: interesting perspective, and I personally would love to hear more about his history. Phil Baker at Improbable. Henry, I appreciate that wreck. I'm going to hit you up behind the scenes to get access to them or track them down and hit them up with the invite. I appreciate you, friend. I will share your LinkedIn information, which is a great hub to get at all your talks and blogs, as well as that Trello board with all the resources for Game Automated Testing Resource Hub. that's the one. That's the one. That link's going to go in the show notes. Sweet. All right, my friend. Any last words for the listeners out there? For the listeners, I hope that you know we all continue to do great and everyone doesn't
1: have to crunch. That's my sincere wish for everyone and for you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. I could could gladly chat to you all day. Yeah, thanks for thanks for the time.
0: You the man, let, let that be a lesson to the listeners out there that you came on out of your own initiative. You went onto the website, out of clicked on the calendar link, and here you are. It's that easy. He's living proof, y'all. Yo. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. Hey, if I got my count right, Henry is the second full-time engineer who's come onto the show. I've got to balance out the scales. I feel like the show's designer heavy. You know, I got to emphasize again how rewarding it felt to have Henry hit me up. Almost all of my guests that aren't nominated, I have to go and hunt down to get on the show and man, he rocked it. He was all about spreading the test driven development, drum, beating that drum and spreading the anthem and planting the seed. It's a thing, I've seen it a lot over at Frostbite and it's something that the industry I feel is behind on. And so if that's something of interest, definitely check out the links in the show notes to his Trello board, the game automated testing resource hub. And if you got GDC vault access, I've linked his talk lessons learned in adapting the Sea of Thieves automated testing methodology to Minecraft. And if all of that is too much work, just go and connect with him on LinkedIn. Check out his profile. He's got all those resources there. One of the moments that I really dug was how he connected with a person who was just singing praises of this pattern and reached out to him. If I don't say it enough to you aspiring devs out there or people looking to make a jump is to be very vocal, be very public with your content in whatever medium, because odds are someone who has a similar interest or a shared interest will find it and connect. And that's all networking is. It's making a genuine connection on a shared interest. It shouldn't feel like work. It should be a natural extension of the thing you were doing that you would do anyway. I think one of the most badass things is his story about being able to play that game of, hey, what would you do with no bounds? And he created that role that would bring value to his company, his employer, and serve the entirety of Xbox Game Studios. How fucking gangster is that? That's a trend that I see the most interesting with all these takeovers and mergers. And that's what has attracted me to the Amazons, the EAs, and the Epics is being able to affect multiple products and teams from within one entity. So major shout out to him for being able to identify a problem and speaking up to build a team, to address it at scale for all those lucky dogs under the Phil Spencer and Matt Booty Xbox Game Studios umbrella. On episode 35, we sit down with Sean Alexander Allen of New Challenger, where we talk about the game jazz of Color Expo, what it was like building his baby treachery and Beatdown city and more. That episode debuts in a couple of weeks on Monday, June 20th. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of play area, the Game Developers Podcast releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain, crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D. NYC, know we got the vibe. Uh, make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out of play area podcast. Out of play, Out of play area podcast little something for the game devs stay strong stay true and stay dangerous had to switch the styles for a challenge best thing out of Harlem since young Miles Morales a new podcast comes to provide the balance with game devs, veterans and rising talents out of play welcome to the out of play area podcast a show by game devs for game devs with no ads no bs just the real. welcome to the out-of-play area. Let's go.